You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 180, Building Resilience Factors, part two. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, on the last episode, we began a conversation with Dr. Jackie Park on the role of resilience when facing adversity. And today, she is back to continue that conversation and to really uh, do a deep dive on some of the building resilience factors, uh, some of the critical ones that we should know about. And so for those who didn't listen yet to episode 179, if you didn't, by the way, you can go back and listen. What should people be remembering from our previous conversation, Sandy? Well, Dr. Jackie Park is amazing. And her experiences, you can go back and listen to her bio, but she is also a colleague and valued friend at Vanguard University and her work with adolescents and with refugee, she just brings a wealth of experience. And I love the definition she introduced us to on the last podcast. So welcome back, Dr. Jackie Park. And why don't you remind us of the definition of resilience that we're working with? Sure. So we were talking about a definition of resilience that I saw in the literature, and this was by Grotberg in 1995. So the definition is that resilience is the human capacity to face, overcome, and be strengthened by, or even transformed by, the adversities of life. Wow. Just like last time, I am just so inspired by the idea of transformation because of adversities. And you introduced us to two ends of the spectrum, the risk factors and the protective factors. And one of the things that really inspired me about protective factors is that you identified those also as preventative. And when you are working with adolescents, how does that prevention mentality inform how you do that? Yeah, there's a there's a paradigm that some people look to when they're working with youth, and it's called positive youth development. But it's basically this idea that we want to, as much as possible, identify and highlight the protective factors that are present in a person's life. But we also want to shore up their psychological resources by if possible, increasing the number of protective factors in their life. So we want to highlight the protective factors that are there. We want to build in more protective factors if possible with an understanding that this may even prevent them from suffering future difficulties if we can shore up their resources for being resilient. I love that. And and so for me, sometimes it's the idea that it's like brushing your teeth with toothpaste that has fluoride in it. I don't have to have a cavity and take you and get it filled. I just have to teach you how to protect your teeth. And we don't have to wait 
for the risk factors to overwhelm a young person or someone who has survived some kind of trauma, but we can actually build those protective factors. So we talked about two things last podcast, and we're going to add three, but let's go back and review social support, Dr. Park. So social support is the idea that someone has a team. They have a group of people, whether it be family or friends or professionals who are caring for them, that they are people who are trustworthy and who love them, who care for them unconditionally and who are there for them. They have a tribe in a sense. I like the term tribe. I had a conversation (laughs) recently with someone who was running an aftercare program for adult women with substance abuse issues. And she said, oh, no, we've got three empty beds because we had three people who broke the rules. And so now they're no longer there. And so we can we can take blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, I don't want to put them there because it feels like that unconditional part. And, and so building that support, how, how would you respond? I had nothing to say. I just got really quiet. How can you have some social support in really difficult circumstances? Yeah, maybe I have nothing to say too. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult question, but I think what my mind goes to is that the love and the support and the care are unconditional, but unconditional love and care and support does include boundaries, right? It does include limit setting. It does include safety, but that may have to look differently from setting to setting. So I certainly don't want to say what any setting or program should do, but what if it's the case that you could still convey support and care and love by maybe having that person stay in a different, you know, if it's a facility with multiple houses, perhaps there's one house that's a different level of care for people who are really struggling or who have maybe broken some boundaries or some limits, they're still there and they're still experiencing the care and support and love of the program, but perhaps the immediate environment has shifted. Does that make sense? Like they may move from one house to another house. Fabulous answer. And I'm so glad I asked that question. Thank you. Thank you. Let's recap coping and self-regulation from last podcast. So coping and self-regulation is the idea that people have a menu of choices at their disposal, at their fingertips, so that when they are experiencing strong emotions, they can make choices about how to self-regulate, how to calm down. So, for example, if they're experiencing a really high level of anger or of stress or of fear, they have options in terms of what they can choose to cope with those emotions. So then that means I can't use an excuse Like, oh, you just made me so mad, so now I just blame you. I actually have to take some responsibility for self-regulation. Right. It's the idea that we always have the power in our sphere of control to choose how we respond to our emotions or choose how we respond to a situation or to other people. And when when I listened to that, and if you haven't, go back and listen to the last podcast, But when I listen to that kind of skill development in personal control of my own emotions, that took me back to the part of the definition that we're basing this on and made it more 
meaningful to me because when I have control of my emotions, that transforms so much of who I am and how I respond to other people. So it begins to actually support and and explain part of the definition of resilience. So that was great. Thank you. So let's move on. We have five factors, social support, coping and regulation. And then number three, Dr. Park. Number three is problem solving. So problem solving is a skill that we sometimes work on with people in therapy, but it means being able to clearly identify a practical life problem, being able to generate multiple potential solutions to that problem, and then being able to experiment by trying one of those solutions. And then another extra step is that if that solution didn't work, if it wasn't effective, what else could you try? Hmm. Yeah, it's like they're, they're, the idea that we only are given a multiple choice test and there are four options and when it's none of the above, I have no other way to go. That's really limiting. So you're, you want us to do E, F, G, H until we find a solution? Yeah, and the sky's the limit. You know, so we, we talked in the previous episode as well that social support, in a sense, kind of activates all these other resilient skills that we're talking about. But an example of that is that if you're trying to solve a problem, and if your view is that you have exhausted every possible solution you can think of, well, do you have the social support to talk with someone about your problem and see what solutions they can think of? Or is there another person that might have some other suggestions of solutions you can try? So there's really, the sky's the limit in terms of how creatively we can approach problems that we face in life. Okay, so that's kind of a new idea for me because I've sort of been trained that when someone comes to me with a problem solving, I'm just supposed to reflect back to them what they say to me, not generate anything new. But you're actually saying that as a mentor, as part of being someone's social support, I can be more creative? I would say so. I I think there's a developmental piece here in terms of if I'm talking to someone and I'm getting a sense that they're facing a specific life problem and they maybe have tried one or two ways of approaching that problem. I want to get a sense of where is this person at in their problem-solving skill set? So they've tried a few solutions and I might have a conversation and say, wow, okay, so I'm hearing that you've tried X and I'm hearing that you've tried Y. What other ideas do you have about what you might try? So I definitely do want to put the responsibility on them to see what they can think of mm-hmm. first. Okay. And I want to honor the fact that they can solve their own problem. And so that is empowering of them. So I agree with that. But I also think we talk with people who get really stuck and um, have a hard time imagining other solutions. And so after I've thrown the problem to them and put the responsibility on them, I might also come alongside them and say, well, I, I really like what you've tried. I would have tried that too. I'm surprised it wasn't as effective as you thought it would be. I wonder if you might try solution Z and just sort of offer it as a suggestion. It's up to them whether they try that, but just sort of coming alongside and, you know, still giving that person the responsibility for solving this particular practical life problem, but you might tack on a suggestion as well. We talk about 
a zone of proximal development. Now I'm getting very clinical no, and jargony with you, Sandy. It's okay. I love it. I love it. Proximal development. Okay. A zone of proximal development. It's like this window of how this person is developing. And so there are things that they can do on their own. And there are things where I can edge their growth. I can nudge them to the next level of growth by participating, you know, for example, by offering a suggestion that just kind of opens that window of problem solving a little bit more. I like that. So, I like that. It's an edge. Yeah. Just an yeah. edge. Okay. It's like the first time I went to track and field in, in PE when I was in seventh grade. They didn't make me try to run a four-minute mile. They just made me try to run 200 meters. And then the next day, you know, next week, we, we went a little further. So if we keep things on that, um, say the word again, the zone of? Proximal development. Proximal development. Oh, I'm going to write that down and learn it. So because I, I do feel like sometimes I hold back of giving some maybe pointing a direction because I don't want to add too much to this person's own ability to problem solve. But if they've never experienced it, that may need not never even occur to them as a possibility. So that um, that is helpful, zone of proximal development. I'm going to study that. We may have to have a whole conversation about it. Sounds exciting. <laughs> And it builds resilience. And then we get into number four, hope and a sense of purpose. Right. So this one, you can probably tell from the name what we're talking about here, but creating a sense of hope and a sense of purpose for people is like an anchor that is going to draw them into the future. It's so often the case that when people are coming out of traumatic experiences, or even if they're struggling, especially with PTSD or with depression, they are really anchored in the past. They're tied down to what has happened. They may be experiencing so many memories or overwhelming experiences coming out of those adverse or traumatic past experiences. But hope is what will draw them forward in a positive way into the future. So this involves having goals for the future, having aspirations, being able to dream about the type of life that they want to have or the type of person that they want to be, getting clear on their values and how those values might express themselves in the life that they're creating into the future and having a sense of purpose, right? That their life is not in vain or without meaning or that everything's without consequence, but that that they're here for a reason, that they can make a difference, that they can make a meaningful contribution the lives of people around them in the world. So you mentioned PTSD, and I spend time in groups with people who are delivering services and care and are the, the counselors and so on. And sometimes I feel like they might be anchored in that PTSD and that, you know, all of our victims have PTSD and this is going to be a limiting factor. So how do I help them move their anchor to a better future? It's tough because as someone who, you know, is involved in the treatment of PTSD, I see the value of 
focusing on it and treating it in a really in-depth way when the person is safe and when they have a sense of stability in their life because what you're doing is you're severing the ties that are anchoring them to the past and to those past traumatic experiences, right? So if you think of this metaphor, I guess this is getting a lot of imagery, but someone's tied down to these anchors of the past, we have to cut those ropes first before we can anchor them into a hopeful future. Arguably, we could do both at the same time, but you still have to cut those ropes to the past. So there is a value in that. But a concept that's really helpful in reorienting to a hopeful future is post-traumatic growth. And this is a related idea uh, to resilience, but it's the idea that people can come out of traumatic experiences, they can walk through PTSD, and they can experience growth post-traumatically in a way that perhaps wasn't possible if they hadn't experienced those traumatic experiences. So post-traumatic growth is a really helpful paradigm to think about in a conversation like that. And that goes all the way back to being strengthened or even transformed by the adversities that you've experienced. Exactly. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Explain just another minute or so about values. How, how does that build at whatever it is that we're going to use to anchor in the future? I think we, in general, in society, we tend to talk about goals and we tend to talk about maybe the kind of life that we want. Sometimes when I talk with people I'm working with in therapy, they have a clear sense of their goals. And to me, that's the what, right? The goal mm-hmm. might be I want to graduate from high school. I want to graduate from college. But there are deeper underlying values that answer the question of why. Mm-hmm. So, well, what is it about graduating high school or graduating college that speaks to the deeper values of who you are as a person and the type of person that you are and the type of person you want to be. And so values to me are a deeper level of clarifying our compass in life and how we move forward into the future. Values help us to make decisions about what we will prioritize and how we will set goals and how we will conduct ourselves in relationships because they answer the question of why. Wow. That's fantastic. Wow. Okay, but we've got to stay on track. We are going to dive into number five, meaning making. So meaning making is being able to look at our life and what's happened in the past, what is happening now, what might happen in the future, and being able to assign meaning in a way that is accurate, but is also life-giving and is hopeful. So an example that I would use is that it's very different for someone to come out of traumatic experiences and say, because all of these things happened, I am now damaged goods versus being able to say, because all these things have happened to me, my trauma is part of what gives me my superpowers as a person. There's actually someone at, at my church a week or two ago, Carrie Garcia, who was teaching, and she said, you know what, I really think that some of these difficult experiences that I've been through give me my superpowers as a person. And I really liked how she said that. Oh, wow. I've got to meet her. (laughs) I just spent uh, a weekend with my sister, who is a cancer survivor. And she has gone through, as you can imagine, a lot of horrible treatment, 
metastases, surgeries, and her resilience is, it was like doing a little bit of a case study as I prepared for this podcast. And she actually used the word superpower because Mm -hmm. the docs at the clinic that she's part of in the support groups, they are astounded at her resilience and all love talking to her because it helps them with their newer patients. And, and I think this idea of meaning making, I've tended to oversimplify it. And I kind of would like a, a few tips on how I can help people that are kind of moving that anchor from being anchored in their past to their future. How can I help them really tie it down in the future through meaning making? I think a lot of the time it starts with listening and really listening in depth and being present to someone's story, but then asking some questions. When people are seeing really stuck in negative meaning making or negative ways of explaining their story to themselves, once I've listened, once I've really empathized with the difficulty of what they've been through, I might say something like, wow, I just can't imagine how difficult these experiences have been for you. And yet there's this part of me that wonders if you have emerged in a new way with strengths, with capacities that are pretty amazing. How do you make sense of all this in a way that will create a hopeful future for yourself? Mm. What does it mean to you that you have experience all of this? What are the most wonderful aspects of who you are by way of what you've been through? So I might think of questions like that when people are ready to talk in that way. It's always a fine line of, I don't want to invalidate, you know, this person's pain. I'm not going to deny that the difficulty of what they've been through, but once I've honored that and once I've empathized with that and they experience me as compassionate, I might shift the conversation into questions like that. Wow. So if someone wants to take a deeper dive on these five factors of social support, coping, and self-regulation, problem-solving, hope, and a sense of purpose, and meaning-making, what would be their next steps? My first response is I'm just going to send them to your website, Jackie Park with an E.com. What will they find there that could help them? Mm-hmm. I have a section on my website with mental health resources that I've been building this summer. So I should say it's under construction, but I'm starting to compile resources there for kids, for teens, for parents, and for teachers. But certainly there is a whole host of a whole companion of information out there on the internet regarding resilience as well. Okay. So I just pulled open your website and, and it is easy. You click on mental health resources and then you find for parents, for teens, for children, and for teachers. So I'll be I'll be looking in that teacher segment and seeing how I can grow some of my understanding there as well. That's so, so valuable. When I think about moving from 
just seeing a trauma-informed care approach that I'm going to implement in my everyday conversations with at-risk populations. This idea of resilience moves me to a different place. And when we started the first podcast, you talked about creative vision. And my goal for these two podcasts is really to introduce people to thinking about resilience in a way that is applicable in everyday life and with our kids, with our students, and in our in our own tribes, if you will. I like that term, Jackie, tribes. Are you part of my tribe? I hope so. Yeah, because that would, makes... I would be honored to that, have you That makes me... Tribe. I like to think so. Makes me feel more resilient knowing that you're part of my tribe. And I, I think if you're listening to this and you're thinking about how do you build more intentionality to implementing resilience in your professional outcomes, I, I really think we can use these five factors. And you want to just summarize them in two minutes as we close out this episode, Jackie. Five factors. Sure. So the five factors are social support, coping and self-regulation, problem solving, hope and a sense of purpose, and meaning making. And it's important to keep in mind that social support seems to activate all of the other ones. So that's a really important foundation for people to have. Activators. Okay. I like that. Jackie, you are inspiring and you probably don't realize how much your impact is having on how we create our program at the Global Center for Women in Justice. You actually came and trained um, briefly with our team that went to work with refugees in Greece. And the training that you provided, we just went and replicated it globally. And now it's been instituted at two of the refugee centers there. And I believe that your values are really driving goals that are a better future for those who have suffered extreme trauma. And I'm just really grateful for having you in my life and a big shout out to the work that you continue to do on behalf of refugees. So thank you so much, Dr. Jackie Park. Dave, do you have any comments? Well, thank you, Jackie. In addition to us all just connecting with you and and following such great professional work you're doing, Jackie, Sandy and I are both uh, grateful to call you a friend as well. And Sandy, we've hit on a lot in these last two episodes. And so a couple call to actions that I'll have for you listening. The first call to action is if you want to do a deeper dive on what you've heard today, we've just, of course, uh, you know, scratched the surface. Uh, I'd certainly encourage you to go over to Jackie's website, JackiePark.com, park with an E at the end. And uh, as you're there online going into details, I also hope that you may consider taking a moment to go over to endinghumantrafficking.org. Especially if you've begun listening to the show recently, or perhaps this is your first episode you're listening to, we'd invite you to take that first step to download a copy of Sandy's ebook, The Five Things You Must Know, A Quick Start Guide to Ending Human Trafficking. It is really going to provide the foundation 
for many of the conversations that you'll hear on this show and the conversation you've heard today with Jackie. It'll teach you the five critical things Sandy's identified in her work here through the Global Center for Women and Justice that you should know before fight uh, joining the fight against human trafficking. So get access to that by going to endinghumantrafficking.org. Of course, we'll have the show notes there as well for today's episode and everything we've mentioned. Hey, if you've been listening for a bit and you have not yet left a rating or review for the show, please do that on whatever platform that you use to listen to podcasts. Thanks in advance if you do. And Sandy, I'll see you again in two weeks. That's right. Take care, everyone. <laughs>